0: Hey folks, in case you missed it, the single barrels have started rolling in. Both barrels of the Jack Daniels single barrel barrel proof rye are available through Hudson Wine Market with direct links in my social media pages and Instagram bio. These also went out to patrons with a special discount code. These barrels have been going so quickly that honestly, I don't even know if they're going to be any left by the time this is posted. So if they are available and you want them, trust me, don't wait because someone else is going to grab them first. Next up is the barrel rye finished in Armagnac casts. This is going live on October 2nd. This incredible pick was done in partnership with the guys at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. The Timbip guys are great friends, and I'm thrilled to have this barrel come into the shop. On October 2nd, Patreon members of both podcasts will have first dibs with free shipping for Patreon supporters. No limits, no minimums. Free shipping for Patreon supporters. So up your Patreon pledge now if you want to grab them before everyone else and get that free shipping code. Just want to take a quick second. Thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to all the supporters, especially my friends on Patreon. You've put a ton of investment into the pod and the site through the years. And as these single barrels start rolling out and additional products start rolling out, I'll keep providing as many perks as possible to those who have supported me along the way and continue to join. If you're not a patron, If I was on the outside, sounds like now's the time to join. All right, enough updates. Now on to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, I am joined by the team from Adnams Brewery and Copperhouse Distillery. Same place, different name. I'm joined by uh, Brad Adnams, who's the head of international development, and John McCarthy, master distiller. So guys, welcome on.
1: Good afternoon. Good morning. I'm not sure. What is it for you? Uh, morning, Hi. must almost be. Ab- yeah. Almost afternoon. Oh, almost afternoon. Good, afternoon. Yeah. Good evening for us. Good then. to meet you, Dave. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Good to have you guys on. And um, just before I jump into questions, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Fred Barnett over at Anthem Imports. He set us up, sent me some samples of your uh, whiskeys and products that I got to taste, which, you know, while never a requirement, it always really helps these discussions and things like that. So thank you to Fred. And with that, let's jump right in. So Adams is a highly successful brewery has been, it's been 151 years in operation now since 1872. So I guess the big question to start off with is why introduce spirits?
2: Well, so no, no that's, I'll, I'll <laughs> take on that one. Um, so, so yeah, so we've been around He's for 150 one. years and, and making, Making beer for, for for that whole period, um, and I think when in, it was in two thousand and eight, I think the process of putting in the new uh, brew kit in our brewery, we updated some some very old equipment and and put in some sort of state of the art brewing equipment, and that that move of equipment around the brewery left a space uh, where the old brewing coppers used to be, the mash tun and the kettle you used to sit in one part of the. The brewery, and that was now with with the with the new brew kit going in. That space was left empty, um, so I think there was a bit of bit of debate around the business about what we could use that space for. Um, and my cousin Jonathan Adams, who's the the current chairman of the of the company, I think he he sort of came to the idea that. Rarely distilling is is one step on from brewing, and and we're already creating that alcohol um, in our brew house. So so essentially, we could add that that additional step um, and start creating some grain to glass spirits um, using the local grains that we've got, um, sort of growing around us. Because we're, we're quite lucky um, being in East Anglia um, on the east coast of England, we've got some of the best malted barley growing area in, in the world um, so I think that was that was where the idea came from um, and, and why, we, why we decided to put the distillery in
1: yeah, There was a few <laughs> yeah, problems with that <laughs> It was sort of a, not illegal yeah. against regulations shall we say so a very old um, British law stated that a brewer and a brewery and a distillery could not exist on the same site. Now that stemmed back to probably a hundred years previous when, so when, when, you know, when we first became a brewery in the 1870s, 1880s, when you, you paid duty on the malted barley you bought um, and you paid a certain rate, whether you're a brewer or a distiller. Now our government agency who controls tax probably didn't trust brewers um, I don't know why, um, mm-hmm. but uh, the rate for the for distilled products and the rate for beer were different. So they just said you can't do both on the same site. So a company could own breweries and own distilleries, but they couldn't do this perform that same process on the same site. So they had that was just a law that you couldn't. In fact, I do know a, there is a story of a, a brewer who built a large brewer who built a distillery on their site and actually had to put a public right of way. Between the two buildings, so they said, so they could say they were different. Um, so when we applied for the license to be a distiller, uh, we were not sure that we were going to get it. Um, in fact, our local HMRC man, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, um, wasn't sure we were going to get it. And yeah, so he said, you the only way you're going to find out is to apply for it. And we found out you know, quite a while down the down the road that the law had been um, revoked because we haven't paid duty like that for 90 years. So yeah, we paid duty on alcohol as it leaves the, the site. So that had changed, but they hadn't yeah. told anyone. <laughs> so we applied for the license, yeah. So it, it, it went on for a few months, and then eventually we um, contacted our, our HMRC contact and said, oh, how's the application for our license to be a distiller going on? He said, I don't know, I'll give Glasgow a ring because that's where all license were licenses were given out from. Oh and um he phoned them up and they basically said to him do you want them to have a license and that was the hmrc man luckily said yeah that'd be okay they pay their bills and and that that made us us then the the first brewery
2: and distillery on the same site in the uk yeah
1: in in the uk yeah so it's good to know that
0: other countries have just as convoluted and sometimes outdated tax laws and regulations.
1: Yeah. And even when they change them, they just don't tell anyone.
0: <laughs> exactly. You know, we've got to deal with the, the three-tier system over here and mm-hmm. it that alone is a problem. But then you get into each of the states, it's, it's even more so. It's craziness. Um, so you're able to introduce the distillery and we'll get a little bit into the details of the, the stills and all of that in a little bit. Um, but so officially the spirits part comes from Copper House Distillery. So that's yeah. your internal and external name for the still part of things. Um, but the products themselves are still under the Adams name. Um, so is that part of the application process that you had to have a different name or thought you had to have a different name or you just wanted uh, to have think, a clear distinction? I think
1: the first, the, so uh, I, the, idea, the idea, the initial idea was to make gin, but do it from scratch, so make a wash make vodka, make gin. Um, and the brand name that Jonathan came up with was Copper House Distillery because yeah, it, was it was formerly with... the Copper House. Um, and it became yeah. called it Copper was House gin from that.
2: where the old brewing coppers were. So that was that space in the building was always referred to as the Copper House. Um, so then the when House. the distillery went in, oh. we got the name Copper House Distillery. Um and that yeah that was I, I think initially john i think there was copper house we were developing that part as a as a set differentiator brand underneath adnams um yeah but then what what, hap- the what happened part. was we had Copperhouse gin was our leading product and there was that big gin surge within the uk so so we had on on our labels, Copperhouse Distillery distilled gin, and that product sort of took off ahead of everything else, and everyone started referring it to referring to it as Copperhouse Gin. So it's it, it sort of created its own brand from from just being about and having Copperhouse on the label, um, and and so then subsequently when we went through some rebranding processes, we sort of dialed down the the Copperhouse Distillery branding, slightly, but you still see it through through our designs, like you know, small hints to it, like on the top of the on the top of the capsules above the cork. There's the Copperhouse Distillery sort of logo. Um,
0: and so the so this is in 2010. Start off with a uh, gin and and a vodka. At what point did you decide you want to start distilling for whiskey?
1: Uh, That was, it sort of evolved because we were, um, gin was in his infancy, uh, the the amount of gin we were making. So we weren't distilling gin every day. We weren't distilling vodka every day. And so I just had some still time and thought I'd make some, we had a conversation with Jonathan, obviously, because yeah, I wouldn't just do it off my own back, but yeah, I thought I'd make some whiskey for something to do and buy some casks. And see what happened and it was a purely experimental really and you know uh it sort of snowballed from there to we've made quite a lot
0: <laughs> yeah and you've got i mean the ones that i got to try uh just off the top of had i got to try the adam single malt mm-hmm. as well as the rye malt yes and uh, both of them which i quite enjoyed and had different pr- flavor profiles that uh come from you know the french oak which again we'll talk about a little bit later but the so, starting off with the whiskey itself, you said you know you had some extra time on the stills and wanted to, um, to create something. The let's talk for a second about the stills that you had put in. Okay. So, you got Christian Carl
1: stills. Yeah. And... So initially, initially we had just one pot still with a beer stripper. So we had a beer stripper as our initial distillation. Um, a lot more common in your part of the neck of the woods than ours. Mm-hmm. um in fact i think it was initially called a bourbon beer stripper uh, uh with a stripping section and a rectifying section on top quite tall mm-hmm. quite noisy very hot <laughs> um yeah so and but that enabled us not to have an initial wash still it became right. our first distillation where you concentrate all the alcohols and take them all out and then worry about separating them in your second distillation but it's quite efficient it works it um process is about 800 to 900 liters of wash per hour and we run it continuously so constant feed in of wash and um alcohol out the top and non-alcoholic beer out of the bottom
0: and then your second
1: distillation yep yeah so second distillation we have a 850 liter copper pot still um with uh three plates in the head and then it's connected to a uh, vodka columns which is another 40 plates um copper plates and then a, a another steel a, co- a stainless steel demethylization still which is we don't need to talk about vodka <laughs> um uh, for our that's for our vodka production but if we disconnect the 40 plate column we're we're left with just a normal small three plate head on top and we used when we first started, we made vodka in that still. We disconnected the columns to make gin using some water through uh, so for some reflux in the top of that. And then we went when we make whiskey, we turn the water off, so it works like a normal alembic head, really. Um, so that still is what we made every single thing for quite a few years up until two thousand sixteen, and then we evolved. So yeah, so then we expanded to have separate stills for everything.
0: So before 2016 then, uh, as I said, so you, you were able to run everything off of the one still. Did you, you said, you were, you were able to kind of shift a couple of things over in the operation of the still so that you could run the whiskey just as you would run, not just as a, you would no, run it,
1: a, normal, a normal un, boy. so we, one with no right. cooling in the top, with no rec- reflux control other than you the still and the air temperature around it. Right. Um, yeah, to make it more traditional whiskey still. Um, so that's how we we made whiskey for a long time. In fact, we still make whiskey like that today because we sometimes we run um, that still to make whiskey when the whiskey still is already busy making more whiskey for someone else or whatever. Yeah, we make a lot of whiskey spirit or new make spirit, I should say.
0: So in twenty sixteen, when you expanded, uh, what did you did you bring in kind of a copy still or a um? We we did
1: we brought in a copy still to make gin, so a a very similar, but slightly smaller still for making gin, which had a reflux coil in the top. But we bought a a third still, which has a normal, a nice, lovely, curvaceous alumbic head with no cooling in it, just like a proper Moorish designed still, which was beautiful, very expensive. And I remember going to Germany with Jonathan, and uh, we went to speak to Christian guys at Christian Karl about buying some more stills and he said oh maybe if we got two stills they look nice they will look like twins they'll be exactly the same and i sort of said i really like the olympic head and he went but they're really expensive john but i talked him round. <laughs> i can't believe i got away with it but we're glad he was glad in the end I hope. The,
0: the Christopher carl stills uh, i was just visiting a distillery quite nearby me um just about two hours north just over this weekend and they have a pair of them they have a couple they also have a you know 40 plate column still as well but they have two that are identical they're paired together and they do look very nice together yeah i don't know if you need that for all of them but i can and of course you're always trying to sell more stills so i get
1: that you are and i think with ours with us having two different stills it gives the tour guide something to talk about
0: true very true
1: about, oh and this and this one is the whiskey still it has mm-hmm. an alembic head and it's you know more traditional.
0: And you mentioned when you also after, well, I should say, you said that you do also distill sometimes for other people. Um, was that happening before the expansion or only after you had the extra no, capacity? Actually,
1: actually, quite recently, Okay. quite recently. Um, yeah, some friends have asked. Some I say friends, uh, when you become a distiller, you tend to join <laughs> clubs where other distillers go. <laughs> sure. Um, which is great. The parties, I mean, sorry, the dinners, the conversations are very good. Um, but yeah, so mm. someone who's having a, a, a shutdown at their distillery has asked us to do some contract distilling for them. Which is great. You know, yeah. they send us the malt, we distill it for them, send them back the liquid. It's very easy,
0: as long as it doesn't have any peat in it. You
1: know, it no, we be... don't really like peat. <laughs> yeah, well, we do like peat, but the brewers don't like it very much.
0: Yeah. It's... I'm a big proponent once you have peat in there you can't get it out you just buy a new still at that point
1: yeah it's not that it's the malt handling part part of our system which we share with the brewery right. and they said if i contaminated that with peat and malt they would never speak to me ever again
0: <laughs> that's yep yeah, i believe it i believe yeah. it. so when you were both when you were deciding to get into spirits generally, but I would say really about getting into the whiskey side of things. So you had the extra room, brought in uh, equipment that could handle it. I'm thinking also, you know, at this time, the gin craze was big, Mm -hmm. or it was starting off for sure. It was also doing here, cocktail culture went wild. Um, But for the whiskey side of things, who did you look to for inspiration in both your, you know, what stills you were going to use and also what you wanted to get out of them
1: i can't say we really did we sort of went. we've plowed our own furrow i would say we you know we knew that everyone would to start with english distilleries who make whiskey was you could count on two fingers and we were the second finger um so there's only one other distillery and us who were making whiskey at that time there's now i think 40 english whiskey distilleries Uh, but i looked to scotland and ireland and saw they were buying lots of ex-bourbon casks um but we'd where have we been actually i was in in the states when when i we me and jonathan came on a small course in michigan Mm -hmm. run by christian karl sort of kick the tires before we bought any equipment off them just to see and go around a few places that ran and had some christian karl equipment and we went to a small distillery I want to say it's uncle john's cider farm i think it was called that anyway they had a tiny christian Karl still and we went there with a few people christian Karl, and and they had some casks and there's some casks that were made by a company called red owl uh which are in Jonzac, in france in the cognac region and i googled them contacted them um yeah and we bought ended up buying lots and lots of Brand new French oak and American oak casks instead of buying ex bourbon casks. So, our maturation time initially, so we made a lovely dark spirit in three or four years right. instead of having to wait 12 or 15. <laughs> True. But uh, they were more expensive.
0: I should know this, and I can't think off the top of my head which um, English distillery was the first? English
1: it was, was the, the, um, the one in Norfolk the, yes, the English whiskey company oh that's right. okay imaginatively named English whiskey company, but we do like them they're very they good friends
0: uh, I, very early on in the podcast, I spoke to um, David Thompson from Spirit of Yorkshire mm-hmm. and uh, it, they I think were in 2012, so it was just a year or two after, but still very few at that time yeah, yeah. Um, despite so much of the barley being used in Scotland and Ireland coming from England. So that's uh, for another day, but
1: yeah. Even Japan.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I've had
1: visits from Japanese distillers who were over having meetings with their malt suppliers.
0: Yeah. If they want things to taste like scotch. Yeah. Then you get the barley from the same place. place. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking too. So I, as a side note, I have a personal connection to East Anglia um, that goes back to uh, when I was in grad school, I did a, thesis on oak management in medieval oh, okay. England, focusing mm-hmm. on East Anglia. So looking through the exchequer records and all of that, which were still in Latin, which was obviously <laughs> annoying, to. but um, you learn, learn pretty quickly to look for certain words. Uh, never thought I would end up talking about whiskey, but here we are. And uh, so to talk about East Anglia as this area where you have some great grain um, I know the between the malted barley, between the barley, excuse me, uh, pre-malted, and also the rye that comes from right by you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, having had the brewery there for 150 years, or I guess 140 at the time of the spirits coming on, did you also have a feeling that the the grains were right for the project? Kind of like if you had a solid beer, then you were going to make a solid whiskey out of that.
1: Oh, we hoped we used brew brewing quality everything. So we brewing quality grain, it was really good quality, obviously and not distillers, barley, but that's all to do with nitrogen levels and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I think what we had was the best grain you could get really, um, coupled with a brew house and a brew house team who knew how to handle it. Um, we and, and the equipment we so a lot of distilleries will have very basic mash tuns um we had a brew house that was far in advance of that you know we have um stepped mash ton stepped temperature controlled mash tons um or temperature conversion vessels i should say that's what they're called now uh with louder ton technology louder tun after that which um separates the grain from the liquid wort which is all pressure controlled so if there's a uh, if the pressure above the plates gets too high compared to the pressure below the plates, it, there's some arms come around and lift lift the grain up to allow liquid to flow. And sparge, is, sparge temperatures are all temperature controlled. And then that goes off to a kettle where we're not boiling, but obviously we would have done if it was beer.
2: Yeah, because I, I, I suppose that's part of the, the philosophy of, of us making whiskey is that we, we're sort of using the best quality grains malted barley that we can get yeah we're using our, our yeast, yeast which is we it's, it's a hundred year old yeast strain um we've been using it for 80 years yeah. ourselves um the best equipment that we could get um best brewing equipment yeah
1: an, an energy efficient brew house as well very energy efficient so when we installed that in 2007 just by one simple process of recycling heat, we save 35% of our gas usage. Mm-hmm. So a massive saving in gas and steam.
0: Yeah, the the environmental and sustainability aspect of ADNAMS as a whole is uh, prominent on the website yeah. and in yeah. um, discussion. And I uh, appreciate that. It's something we're kind of behind on in this side of the pond. And we're, you see more and more distilleries working on that. Yeah, lightweight yeah. bottles,
1: recycling everything. Exactly. Try to use as least amount of water as you can.
0: And anyway, you can use like glycol for energy transfer, heat transfer throughout the facility. Uh, it's becoming more common, thankfully. But yeah. it seems like you've been doing that for for a long time. Yeah, I Just think well, the beer and elsewhere.
1: Lightweight bottle. I think we were the first to use a real lightweight bottle for one of our beers. Yeah, I think we worked We worked with now. the manufacturer to yeah, actually that develop
2: that lightweight
1: bottle. Yeah, a super lightweight bottle, which was, you know, everyone didn't really worry about that because they thought a lightweight bottle was just going to break because um, no one treats beer bottles very well. But um, yeah, and it all the beer bottle was originally designed to be recyclable and re- actually returnable and refillable at once upon a time. Um, obviously not like that anymore. But yeah, so the lightweight bottle was something that we we pushed our design, you know, our bottle glass designers yeah. to, to push that, the envelope on that. Yeah. And it and works its way policy. through a lot of
2: a lot of what we do and invest in like our distribution centre. Um, even putting the distillery in, we knew that we could reuse water from the the cooling of the of the stills going into our cask washer, which we already had for cleaning casks. So yeah. it, there's a lot of efficiencies that we could that we could take advantage of by by including the distillery within the brewery.
1: Yeah, but it's evolved. So yeah, initially all our hot water that I made from distilling or went through all the condensers, went to the cask washer to wash casks. Then we found that the cask washer wasn't doing enough hours to keep up with the amount of water I was making. So then we changed it all around and now we do something else. We don't actually make any, any hot water we make. We actually don't make it very hot and cool it down again. So we just run it through the stills really quickly so it only picks up a little bit of heat and then we remove that heat with brewing water, which mm-hmm. is gonna to have to get heated up anyway. Um, so yeah, so we we try and keep everything cool for a change.
0: <laughs> and everything stays cool, but you're still preheating each of the other steps that are. So... Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we're using the heat in a different way.
0: Fantastic. And jumping back just for a second, uh, you both Well, Bradley, you have the the family connection to being part of the Adams apparatus. Um, But John, what's uh, your background and how did you get to Adams?
1: So I was a control systems engineer based in Suffolk, um, although traveling all around, well, mostly England, but occasionally into Europe to do Mm -hmm. jobs on mostly water industry type stuff, environment agency, and... Uh, water companies, British sugar factories and stuff like that, a few weird factories in Belgium and stuff like that I was going to. But I was, you know, I never knew what time I was going to get home. Um, I had a young family at the time, and it was time to look look for a job that I knew what time I was going to get home. And, you know, something local would be nice. And I heard about the job at Adnams and applied and got it. But I started there as a member of the engineering team. So to keep the engineering, um, the brew house running, everything is computer controlled that was my background um yeah so i started doing that and then in 2009 this distillery project came along and as an engineer we ran projects and there was 11 of us and i was selected as the engineer most suitable (laughs) to put a distillery in i don't know what that means yeah so that was when the the trip to the states to to um learn about carl distilling equipment and actually to learn about distilling 100 from scratch really i had no experience at all i had I'd done some brewing exams um <clears throat> while at Adnums for the first nine or ten years i've been here since 2001 so yeah did some brewing exams like that They thought i was the best engineer to be a distiller and en- a distillery installer i'd say there was no plan for me to actually run it afterwards um yeah so i actually the story goes, and it is sort of true and it is true. Actually, I will say that on the plane back from Michigan, me and Jonathan on the plane, couple of drinks and, um, Jonathan said to me, John, I think we'll go ahead and do this distillery. I think it'll work. And I went, that's great. Who's going to run it? And he said, we'll worry about that later. And I said, well, I'll have a go. And he said, okay, then. So that was my job interview with a chairman <laughs> who'd had a couple of drinks. And when I came back, I installed the distillery. I was an engineer and a distiller, also the only person who knew how to turn it on. Very handy. Um, mm-hmm. And I did both for several years, but slowly the distilling overtook the engineering. Yeah, They still miss me.
0: Well, that's the number <laughs> one rule in a job. Make yourself as irreplaceable as possible. And only that's... person
1: who had to turn it on. I'm the person drinking here, by the way. Oh, yeah. Please do. And it's quarter past five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so I know you said you kind of started, as you said, I love this phrase, you plowed your own furrow as you were building the distillery. Uh, did you, to become the, a distiller, did you uh, do any particular classes in England, visit other distilleries in that way?
1: I did. Well, I, as a, as a brewery, we we have an association with the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. And mm. we, that's the who I've done my previous brewing exams with. And that's who the sort of the body that we've done, everyone did their brewing exams with and they obviously did distilling exams. Um, And I had started doing the diploma in brewing, had done the first module of that. And uh, yeah, then moved on to the sort of transferred over to the diploma in distilling, and spent three years doing that, which is fascinating. And then um, meeting other distillers. Uh, came about because I was asked to join the, first, the Gin Guild, mm. um, which is a, a subsidiary of the Worshipful Company of Distillers. Uh, and then on that, on from the Gin Guild, I then got nominated and seconded to join the Worshipful Company of Distillers, which is one of the, um, so there's, I think, 120 different Worshipful companies in England and in the UK. Um, the first one is the Mercers, and there's the Worshipful Company of Fletcher's and the Worshipful Company of Bowyers, And they're all just, um, they're to do with the City of London. So you have to become a, a Freeman of London to then become a member of a Worshipful Company. And you go mm-hmm. to nice dinners. And you meet, you know, in the distillers. The distillers is quite lucky that the majority of the Worshipful Company distillers are connected to the distilling industry. I can mm-hmm. guarantee there's not many Fletchers in the Worshipful Company of Fletchers because there's not many Robin Hoods about. I think, I believe there is yeah. one. I, I've been told there's one Fletcher in the Worshipful Company of Fletchers. And I was talking to a member of the Worshipful Company of Plumbers the other day, and he said there's about 10% of the Worshipful Company are actually plumbers. The rest are bankers.
0: That, that's the pro- I mean, the Fletchers I like, get, yeah, because, I mean, how many people are routinely Making shooting arrows, arrows yeah. nowadays? Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I'm proud of myself for knowing what that term was off the top of my that's head. Okay. <laughs> but um but, but I mean, the plumbers, I would think it's got to be at 10%. I mean, yeah, if no, I've no, a plumber no. who's from the Worshipful Association. I want them to
1: want them to all be plumbers, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, you want to call them up if you've got a leaky tap, but no, um, yeah, no, but and apparently the, the Fletchers don't like the Bowyers, don't get on, <laughs> um, which is weird, uh, a little bit, yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating history. I think, um, the Worshipful Company Distillers were inaugurated in 1672, I think. And but the Worshipful Company of Mercers, which is the original one, goes back to 11 something, and they own most of Covent Garden as a Worshipful Company, and so they they make a lot of money through rents. I was told initially when they first started the Welsh Will in Mercers, they owned everywhere between St. Paul's and Westminster, which if you know London is a very big area. That, that's but a very king big yeah. It's a very big area. And some king somewhere down the line decided they had too much money and took a lot of them off, took a lot of their land off of them, but they still own all of Covent Garden. So they're doing okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. That, that's not only a large part of London. It's a large part of central along the yeah. Thames London. Yeah, It so is. That's...
1: And so it's a l high rents
0: yes um my wife and i were just in london back in april and uh had spent a whole week just in the city and loved it we're yeah, huge it's fans beautiful. it's it's the only other place we're born and bred new Yorkers, so we're, we're very stubborn about these kinds of things but it's also that's a the nice only... city to visit oh, it's, it's wonderful and i and we love it but we've decided london is the only other city we could live in
1: it's 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 very it, I, well i do yeah. like to go i go quite regularly
0: yeah, between culture and, and transport and all that it's anyway yeah it's a, never, is
1: a it's easy to yeah. get around and there's a lot of history every time you pop out of a have a tube station there's something to look at mm-hmm.
0: exactly so so with the i want to then jump to this in-house yeast that you've got and so said it's 100 years old you've been using it for 80 years mm-hmm. um that's about 10 years after Prohibition, I'm, I'm just curious if there's any link between finding the yeast then and
1: um, I think, restarting. So the, um, 1941, I think is the year. So there's a there was another brewery yeah. called Morgan's, which is in Norwich, yeah. which is 20, 30 miles away from us. Um, mm-hmm. So we'd gone and got yeast from them several times um, in our history. So I'm told I wasn't there. Um, mm-hmm. Um, but what happened in the in 41 was the last time we ever went went and got any yeast from them because they burned down. They burnt down in the Second World War um, and they never restarted. So we had that yeast from then and we've kept it going. So um, it was multiple strains of yeast initially, but they had it cleaned up in, I think, the 70s yeah. and 80s. I think a lot of work was done That's to, to clean it up. Well, yeah. Now it's We're just,
2: just still two strains.
1: Playing. Yeah, it's still class playing. one and class three. Class one and class three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So class one as a as a is a, a class one is a chain former. So if you look under a microscope, you'll see lots of cells joined in a chain. And class three is one and two cells. They don't get any bigger than that. Um, but unfortunately, the class three cells don't tend to live very well, and uh, they're, they're not very strong as, as the other one. So the class I need to get this right. The class one. Um, Tries to win all the time, and you end up with too much class one and not of class three. So, we do have to propagate from slopes the other class to keep them 50 50, and which gives us better fermentations in the brewery.
0: And you have an exceptionally long fermentation as well at at seven days.
1: Yeah, for 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 whiskey, at least. That's that's yeah, it is quite long. We we tend to we, we have got that down now to about four. So if it, if the uh, if it's brewed on a Thursday I can well is it 4 to let's say five if if it's brewed on a Thursday I can start stripping it on a Tuesday and That's because I'm uh, from 50,000 liter wash when I start stripping it it can still carry on fermenting most of it only you know taking a bit out at a time
0: sure all right so the there aren't a lot of distilleries too uh, this is why I, I became so interested in looking into your history and the way that you make whiskey and beer is uh, not a lot of distilleries use multiple strains of yeast it's usually either distillers yeast basic distillers yeast or brewer's yeast or they'll have their own you know this was my pappy's recipe from whoever knows when it never <laughs> is but they'll say it's that recipe you know yeah ours is strain. not
1: by choice ours is by design uh, we've, we we've got that yeast and we're gonna we have to live with it you know it's it's part of our history now so we will struggle on with it forever we have a massive yeast room with lots of tanks in it and we have people counting yeast cells three or four times a day it's a great <laughs> job <Good laughs> clicker. Okay, working i working started- out we doing viability te- tests and oh yeah i
0: guess like you said you wouldn't want to change the yeast in any way so the only way to for example to um i don't know strengthen the propagation of of class three so mm. that it was able to hold up better against the chain formation of class one but because you don't want to change it just keep adding more of the class three yeah, in there we're, just, just... We
1: are, we're gonna live with it we've le- lived with it for a long time now i think I, I can remember when i first started 20 odd years ago they were thought we'll try and find a single yeast strain that can flavor match in our best bitter because at the time we were beer makers and they tried multiple small High tube, you know the long tubes where you can just do a fermentation in a tube to represent the 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 pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they couldn't find anything. Multiple multiple strains of yeast. They tried to try and get a flavor match to make our bitter taste the same, but it didn't work. So they, they gave up after several months. It was several months.
0: So I haven't had the chance to try uh, your beers just because
1: you know. If I if, right, if <laughs> I had time. known,
0: I would have tried them, of course, uh, and. Honestly, I was, I was tasting a lot of gin while I was there. So I may have tasted your gin. I have to look back at my notes. Uh, but having said that, with, with the two yeast strains, what do you think each
2: one brings to the table?
1: Uh, we'd have to ask well, yeah, of the brewers. Yeah, I think we'd need to ask the brews. But I think what it is,
2: <laughs> I think, is the, the, the weaker strain of the two is more of the, the flavor driver. Um, and whereas mm. the, the, the other one is it gives it more stability
1: um i do know when they go out of kilter when they're not 50 50 or 60 40 percent yeah we have fermentation problems um you can end up with cloudy cloudy beers all sorts of poor fermentation um yeah so yeast has produced quite big they love well don't say they love it it's something that they have to do
2: Right. No, you're I was using... just going to say the the brewers often describe themselves more not as brewers but as yeast farmers. They they do everything they can to make the yeast happy um, because if you've got happy yeast, you've got got a, a good fermentation and good tasting beer. Yeah. I mean it's true. It's
0: true, and. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that, it's true. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's where a lot of our, our flavor profile comes to the yeast. We put it down to the yeast. Oh, for sure. Yeah.
0: And so that's making, you know, using the, the yeast to make uh, a distiller's beer, or, well, to make a beer, period. But, yeah, which then, in practice, becomes a distiller's beer. And this is uh, something that's it's pretty rare in, in the whiskey world to have a distiller's beer if you'd call it that that hmm. is drinkable. It tastes good. A lot of the distiller's beers are made for one purpose or another. You're gonna, you know, you want to focus more on either alcohol production or a particular flavor that you're gonna then distill and work on from there. Um, uh, but the only other company that I could think of off the top of my head that has a really drinkable distiller's beer is um Westward Spirits. Oh, okay. They're out, out on the west coast hmm. in Oregon, yeah, in Oregon, and uh, I got to try their beer. It's delicious. It's um, tastes like honey wheat bread.
1: Okay, this is the un- this is the wash, the wash, yes, un- un- unhopped. How would you yes. say our-, our beer is? Sorry, our wash is fine, but I prefer the the hopped version.
0: That's fair, but there's a d- big difference between fine <laughs> and I can't drink this.
1: Yeah. Oh no, it's definitely drinkable. <laughs> so- yeah.
0: So uh, in the not having had the beer itself, uh, either the wash or the hopped beer, uh, what kind of flavor profile would you describe the wash as having?
1: Good question. I should have drunk some earlier. It's, it's obviously sweet. It's m- malty. Um, there's some chocolate there. There's definitely some chocolate flavors because mm. I get that in the, in the new make spirit. Big chocolate flavor. Um,
2: there's quite yeah. yeah. There's quite a lot of fruity esters because I think our, our yeast is quite it throws off quite a lot of flavors like black like Belgian style beers as well. So you get a lot of those fruity esters yeah. coming.
1: Yeah. Complex. Yeah.
2: And we'll add into you're using traditional
0: English style, so yeah. ale yeast as opposed to lager. Ferment. So i yeah. top. It's an ale company.
1: yeast. Yeah. Top fermentation. Top fermenting yeast. Yes. Which we crop. So we um vacuum and
2: then, it off the top. Into the next
1: yeah.
0: Interesting. So the so the yeast doesn't quite all doesn't quite all die off. No, no, no,
1: no. So we so yeah. when it comes to the top of the bed, it floats on top. Um it will fall back down if you don't crop it quick enough. But we'll after two days vacuum off the top of all the yeast, back to our yeast room where we'll look after it um and then pitch that the next day and some of the yeast so some of the yeast comes to the top and the dead <laughs> yeast goes to the bottom so we have yeast bottoms and the cropped yeast from the top and the beer nice and clear in the middle hopefully
0: gotcha with that let's jump into the the spirits themselves the uh single malt as well as the rye malt so uh, starting with a single malt you spoke earlier John about the when you were in Michigan you got to try these particular barrels. Uh, mm-hmm. Red Fox wasn't in-
1: uh, uh there was a Radow, which is the Red French Owl, company who makes them. right? Yeah.
0: Um and so for the single malt you use mostly new French oak with some ex bourbon barrels. Yeah. For 66, the aging.
1: 33. So sixty six percent. So two for every two um French oak we use one ex bourbon.
0: Were you pretty convinced after uh, trying the Red Owl in the first place that this was, if you could get the barrels, that this was the one you wanted it to was,
1: go? Yeah, so we we actually initially got some. We contacted Red Owl and got new French and new American oak from them because um, they supply American oak barrels as well as French oak, uh, and we put some spirit in and left it for a few months and tasted it and we had a conversation about it and see which one we preferred. And I thought the French oak was much more complex um spicier no no um coconut flavor at all where the american oak was big coconut but mm-hmm. a bit more shall we say one note um so i thought the french oak was the one to go for that was 50 more expensive <laughs> uh, always the way isn't it the one you like is the most expensive one yeah so yeah we french oak and then initially our first bottlings of single malt were 100 new french oak and then Jonathan actually said, "We've been filling some Ex-Bourbon casks. Let's do a blend and see if see what happens." So I blended several different bari- you know, several different versions and different amounts of uh, French oak and Ex-Bourbon together, and came up with the 6633 blend of uh, yeah that. And we used the American oat barrels we bought for a different whiskey. Gotcha. Which one was that? It's our triple malt whiskey, the one we haven't mentioned yet, which uh, okay. is primarily wheat.
2: No, so f- Fred f- hasn't brought knot. that in um, um, to the US yet. So, I think, yeah, I think we that we're, we're so hoping far, on the on the next uh, <laughs> next order, whenever that is, um, we'll, we'll include that one in the range and and possibly some of the some of the other more unique things that we do, some of the, some of the-
1: Spirit yeah. of Broadside, Bradley. Spirit of Broadside.
0: Okay. So I saw Spirit of Broadside. Now that's the one that I was, okay. Yeah, so that's not you know, whiskey. No, but <laughs> it still looked quite good
2: though.
1: It is. Well, it's, to... it's made like a whiskey and aged in French oak barrels. like Yeah. A whiskey, well, I think,
2: I think in the U S so you're allowed to call it beer whiskey. Call it whiskey. Whereas. Yeah, it's
1: Aux Aux a beer, beer. An, an eau de
0: vie
2: de beer.
1: I would have eaten a beer in France, um, in Germany, beer yeah. brandy or beer brand. Um, it's something we came across me. So actually me and Jonathan again, on one of our trips to Christian and around some, I think we were in Austria, I think, um, go around some tiny distilleries who make millions of different spirits. And mm-hmm. there was a, there was something that was in like a perfume bottle, what I thought was like Chanel number no. five bottle, but it was actually, um, yeah, a beer brandy and tasted amazing. And we thought, oh, we've got a beer that's 7 or 8%. We could distill that. And we have a beer called Broadside, um, which was which is named after or inspired by a battle that was just off the coast of Southwold between the Dutch and the English, which no one won. They just fought all day and then went home at the end, I think, so we're told. Um, but the Broadside is a type of gun. And there are a lot of guns on the beach um, from that era on, on Southwold. Uh, there's a, a hill called gun hill and it has these guns on it um still to this day And they won't work hopefully um yeah so then beer was named broadside first brewed in the early 80s i think the bottled the bottled version of the cask version it was seven point something percent at one point it's five point something now at 5.3 um but yeah we brew that full strength before it's diluted for bottling It's 7.2 percent so we um thought we'd distill that and the hop aroma stays all the way through the process. It is quite unusual and quite amazing, I think. Bradley will yeah. have to get some of that over um, yeah. if he hasn't already. <laughs>
0: I can work with him on that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One bottle uh, at least, David. Yeah.
0: For, well, for sure. Um, no, it, it's it's a fascinating category. Uh, there A couple of brands here have tried hopped whiskey.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I can't say any of them have really worked quite yet. <laughs> But, I,
1: the cask um, helps. So you don't have to age in cask and de v um, right. But I think the cask really calms down the hoppiness.
0: Right. And I'm someone who loves their hops. I, you know, a good IPA, something real mm-hmm. high on the IBU scale. That's, that's my bread and butter. Uh, so I appreciate the hops. It's just odd to find it in whiskey. In whiskey. So, yeah. Yeah. We certainly maybe, couldn't call it whiskey. Yeah. So, the new French oak barrels in particular, uh, as I said, they give such a different profile. Yeah. The, the only other, I'm sure there are other companies that in the US that have tried this, but uh, the one that I'm most familiar with, Doc Swinson's, did a release where they blended uh, whiskey from MGP, but finished it in new French oak casks. Because okay. most of the French oak we see here is either X wine, X rare, more rarely ex-cognac, ex-brandy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's already it's already been through something. It's been toasted once already. It's not usually charred. But when you get a new French oak that's charred, toasted to your specifications, the flavor profile is unlike anything I'd had before. It's amazing, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely delicious. Uh, and for the, as opposed to the single malt, for the rye malt, using all yeah. French oak. Is that right?
1: Yes, all French oak, all new French oak. Medium plus toast, untoasted plus. heads.
0: Interesting, OK. And uh, what char do you go to on that, usually?
1: It's just medium plus. It's medium no plus. char at all. So yeah, very light, a light brown color. Not even light, a medium brown color. We'll call it, it is medium plus. So, But there's no char, there's no black, nothing at all.
0: And you still get a pretty good color on the whiskey like it, it's not the darkness that you would get from from something that's charred but something you would still look like a whiskey if you it want to would simplify look, it that much. would
1: very dark color after a few years yeah yeah um, a lot more color than you get from an ex-bourbon cask we can get sure. this um we've we actually now about to oh, actually i've got one here got one right beside me now um in a little box here so this is a 12 year old one of the f- i want to say possibly one of the first, if not the first. But actually, there, there was only two whisker distilleries 12 years ago. Um, and I, I know th- the English there's there's company there's there, I think company they might that still a
2: have some of, that at year old.
1: some of that available, the 15-year-old. Some of that available. So we've done a 12-year-old. Now, this is 100% bourbon cask, ex-bourbon barrel. And so that's the color we get from 12 years. We will get this color in 12 months from a new French oak cask. Obviously, you need still need a lot more time and f- to develop flavor, but the color wise, you get that in less than 12 months, really, with a new French oak cask. Anyway, 12 year old from England, I know, and we know 12 year old are, are very common in Scotland. Everyone has mm-hmm. a 12 year old, everyone has a 12 year old in Ireland, but we're only the second distillery to have a 12 year old in England. We're very proud to be going that long. Where there's now 40 distilleries who are not even old enough to have a three year old, but they will be.
0: This month's Impact Spotlight is on Nickneen. Founded by Annabelle Thomas, Nickneen has a pioneering approach to spirit making, putting innovation and sustainability at the forefront. Through Nickneen, Annabelle seeks to change the way the world thinks about whiskey from Scotland, and to create a whiskey which could exist in harmony with our planet and its inhabitants. Nickneen has created a spirit with exceptional body and sweetness, showcasing their smooth and elegant house style. This is achieved through a combination of sourcing high-quality organic Scottish barley, gentle fermentation and distillation processes, and maturation in a combination of three carefully selected cask types. Ex-American whiskey casks, STR, shaved, toasted, and recharred casks that held red wine, and a small amount of Oloroso sherry casks. The result is flavors of lemon sherbet, juicy stone fruits, and spiced rye bread. This whiskey is set to disrupt the industry, through Nick commitment to sustainability and creative approach to distilling. With an uncompromising focus, the small team of eco-conscious drinks fanatics also dedicate 10% of their spirit production to trialing different yeasts, not commonly found, in whiskey distilling. All on their journey to seek out and find new flavors in their whiskey making. If you're a long-time listener, you know how interested I am in whiskeys and distilleries like this, and how excited I am that Impex is now bringing it stateside. Annabelle will be visiting Chicago for Whiskey and Barrel Night on October 25th, and will be hosting special masterclasses featuring the key components of Nicknean, along with their core organic single malts. These tastings will also include a sneak peek of Quiet Rebels Gordon. Only 630 bottles of the special one-time-only release will be coming to the States, so it's a release and an event you won't want to miss. Nicknean Organic Single Malt is currently on its way to specialty retailers across the U.S., for more information and questions on where to buy, please contact the Impex Beverages office at office at ImpexBev.com and follow on social media to never miss a release. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Eventually, but you've got a head start on them.
1: So Yeah.
0: With this uh, this rye malt, I think that was when I first when Adams first caught my eye. Mm-hmm. This is, you don't see a lot of rye or rye malt coming out of, of England, of any of the British Isles, I should say. Uh, I think it's one or two from, from Ireland now, and not many. And it's been associated more with either continental or US distilling. So uh, if I have the timeline right, you've started the whiskey, you're making single malt. At what point did the rye become part of the equation?
2: About Jonathan. Jonathan, yeah. About so, so Jonathan, Jonathan Adams, our chairman, um, he's got a, a, a just a, a farm just outside of Southworld in a in a little village that's sort of next door to Southworld called uh, Raiden and Raiden comes from Old English. It's an Old English word meaning rye hill. Um, so, so presumably, there's been rye, rye grown in that. In that area for, for centuries, um, and now Jonathan grows rye himself on his farm, so it's it's quite a good link. Um, being able to use use grains that we or Jonathan is growing on his farm, just one mile away from the distillery, um, and bringing that into into the brewery and then into distilling uh, into spirits it's sort of quite a nice story keeping it sort of hyper local um, almost single estate production um, it just adds it's a really nice story and it's something different and I think I think doing the rye and and maybe we'll discuss the triple malt a little bit later it also sort of plays to our brewing heritage of using because we in brewing we use a lot of different a lot of different molds, a lot of different grains for, for different styles of beer. Um, so I think it's all about bringing that, that brewing heritage through into the way that we make spirits. I'm not sure I've ever had, but
0: is there, are there many rye based beers?
1: That's so Jonathan's rye is used in beer as well. We do a crystal rye, um, And yeah, we, yeah, use, we, we even use in a our... few beers, the German, <laughs> the German grows it. We don't have it I mean, even our <laughs> even our flagship
2: <laughs> beer, which is is called Ghostship, um, we use rye in the in the recipe of that as well. Um, so I think I think rye gives a nice sort of nutty, nutty. spicy note, um, nutty spicy, yeah, which works well in in, in a lot of beer styles
1: and I that's why them. i know we didn't sorry but that's why with yeah. the triple malt that we talked about earlier i haven't really talked about that's a mixture of primarily wheat but with some barley and some and a small amount of oats and the reason for the oats came from the fact that we're brewers we know when you add oats to a beer you get a creamy a creaminess mm. to the beer so we thought oh that might be nice in a in a whiskey Actually, in a vodka as well, we do a, our, our award-winning vodka. Our biggest award-winning vodka is is made with that wash, with the same wash that we make our triple malt whiskey. We make a triple malt vodka called Longshore.
0: <laughs> so the uh, triple malt. So you're, I'm assuming by the name, you're malting all three of the all our grains are
1: malted, Yeah, all yeah. Our grains, even the rye and the rye is malted as well.
0: Yeah, I agree with you with the oats. I I love oats in a whiskey mm. or in a spirit. Just generally, that creaminess is yeah.
1: And just a tiny amount. Yeah. You don't need a lot. I think we're five yeah. percent oats.
0: Yeah, just five to ten percent is all all you need. No, I've had a hundred percent oat whiskey too, which is extremely creamy. creamy. That's guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's verging on kind of a um maple Cream cinnamon soda. oatmeal. Yeah.
1: Oh, oatmeal. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but it is it is delicious. Um, I'll have a single barrel actually of that coming out in eh, January, February, somewhere in the new year, um, hundred percent oat whiskey with 10 to 20% of the oats toasted.
1: Amazing. So good. We'll see how,
0: see how that comes out, but it, it tastes great. But the, uh, so the, when did the triple mash, the triple malt, excuse me, come in, in terms of between the single malt and the rye?
1: It was before the rye after the single malt, it would, basically it was a, a spin off from the vodka so the vodka we started off making two vodkas and two different gins and those mm. two washes one was 100% barley one was triple malt um we then decided we'll make two whiskies and then Jonathan was growing rye and he said well, why don't we make some whiskey out of that and so we did so it's just everything's just evolved um we've made some weird things when we weren't that busy at the start, like I said, when we started making whiskey, we made absinthe, we made of the weirdest liqueurs ever. Um, yeah. All things we just trialed and made some made them for a couple of years and then moved on. John got to have a
2: lot of fun in the, in the early years. Um, yeah.
1: I did have a lot of fun in the years. So it's a bit more serious now, but yeah. Well,
0: love A good absinthe too.
1: Well, yeah, I, I think that, the, the thing that I liked about was, was amazing. History of it.
2: It was exactly. Product. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The problem with making absinthe is it makes everything smell of aniseed and it takes days to get rid of the smell. So when, when gym production got really, really busy, we couldn't really make absinthe anymore because we took two days to get rid of the smell before we could make anything else. And Mm. yeah, production couldn't wait that long. (laughs) Fair enough. But it was, it was fun while it lasted.
0: So being the, the second distillery in England at the time, Uh, you've obviously had to just compete with the fact that, you know, Scotland, Ireland had dominated the space for so long. Mm -hmm. So um, not only when you started the distillery, but also to this day, what kind of challenges or obstacles do you face in convincing people, Hey, this is an English made whiskey and it's worth trying
1: the best thing is to get people to drink it really um it's the hardest thing to do because you need to get them in your presence um but yeah and i think now there's more distilleries will help i think the same thing happened with gin initially that we were there was a handful of gin distilleries and then suddenly there was an influx when everyone found it was a lot easier to get a, a license to be a gin distiller there's now i think 600 english gin distilleries mm-hmm. yeah, amazing um um uh, too many really but um the same thing has happened with whiskey with more there's now an english whiskey guild um recently formed of which we're members um which have been instigated to build the profile of english whiskey there are now definitely 26 members i think there are 40 people starting to make whiskey in the uk not in the uk in england um so uh yeah the more people that make it the more people will taste it the more people will get interested in it and see it as a category um which can only do us good really
0: and from a marketing standpoint going forward do you want to be seen as this as a, a uh feel forgive the phrase a torchbearer, kind of leading the way as one of the earlier adopters
1: yeah We're happy to do that i think bradley we've, we've we've certainly won some awards the um the rye malt whiskey Got double gold at the International Wine and Spirits Competition a few years ago, and has won a few other awards as well. They all have, but the the rye especially has been our most awarded whiskey. Yeah, think, um, which is very I good. Think, and, yeah, uh, and I think I think being a
2: torchbearer for for English whiskey is is a great place to be, and I think it allows us also to showcase some of the innovation that we can bring into whiskey. I think things like using the new word using um, a varied mash bill, like. With the triple malt, it sort of offers something a little bit different and interesting, um, and gives people hopefully a reason to try try the liquid that we produce. Awesome,
0: and I guess also looking forward, between the two products that you have now on uh, on this side in the US, and because I do have some listeners in the UK in general and continental Europe. Um, obviously mostly based in the u s far majority but you've got over here the single malt and the rye malt uh we'll talk to Fred about the uh triple ma- the malt i keep wanting to say triple mash excuse me the triple malt and the spirit of broadside also when you're so John as you said the best way to do it is to get them get people to taste it. And to, and that usually requires being in your presence or having someone to tell them, Hey, this is something to try. Here's a little sample glass to try it. Mm -hmm. When you're not able to be there, uh, what's the, and this can be answered by either one of you or both of you is when you're not able to be there in every place where it is, what's kind of a, like a two line pitch that says, Hey, this is some English whiskey. It's really good. You should try this.
1: <laughs> I, long,
2: I don't have a, a, a too long. I think
1: <laughs> it's really difficult. If we could do that, we'd. we'd yeah, it's I, a golden egg, isn't it? It's getting people to drink it, and I think we need lots of brand ambassadors. Yeah. I, I think that's ready a ready challenge.
2: We, I, th- I think that is a challenge we've been grappling with for for quite a long time. Is how how do we succinctly put across? Mm um in in a two-line thing like to to draw people in and say actually you need to try this because i think what we've got is a is a lot of stories and a lot of sort of there's a lot of technicality in terms of differences in how we make our whiskey that you really need to have a conversation about our whiskeys to be able to to transfer that knowledge um so i think what yeah, what we've got to focus on is like John said is really building building ambassadors within our team, but also just consumers that really um, like what we do and, and like well, our products and, and try and get them to to discuss that with, with their friends and recommend um, people to try our, our whiskeys. So and, and doing things like like I was in Poland two weeks ago at a whiskey live event in poland um and you know getting loads of people in the public to to try our whiskies. Uh, i think it's it's quite something seeing seeing people lo- look at our products because also the, the design is quite the design of our products is is quite bold i think in the whiskey category um we've got some of our bottles are quite brightly colored um which i think draws people in initially but maybe it doesn't sit in the people's traditional view of what a whiskey looks like so 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 they they can be drawn in but then slightly wary of like what what is this um but then when they when they actually when you tell them it's english whiskey that intrigues them a little bit more and then when when they taste the when they taste the liquid you can you can just see that the the delight on their face when they when they sort so of that like, well where have you where have you come from sort of thing like we, we know it's english really we didn't realize that there was um english whiskey producers producing uh whiskey as good as this you know so it's it's, it's quite fun seeing that reaction, but yeah, we need to do more of it in terms of getting it in front of people. That's, it is the most difficult thing. Well,
1: it can be very I mean, costly.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. I know at least right now with, um, the Rye is probably the easiest to kind of get in front of people right now, just because we're going through our own Rye revolution here. Yeah. All the rye brands are coming back and new ones entering the market with their own recipes and such. So that at least, as you said, the marketing uh, of the bottles and the design of the bottles does catch the eye. They're, they're bright. They're big white letters, easy to read from far away. So someone can say, oh, that's a bottle I want to look at. And having the rye alongside it, uh, certainly, I mean, it caught my eye. It certainly catches the eye of people if it's on, on a bar in the rye section. Um, I think obviously, the single malt, the triple malt, might be slightly harder, just because it's um, as good as they are, and and I hope this comes off the right way. It's it's not as in vogue as the rye itself is.
1: Mm. Rye has always created a lot of you know excitement. I think
0: right. Uh, so, but still, I, I think. Personally, I'm someone, if I get to try one product from somewhere and I like it, I want to try their whole lineup. So Mm -hmm. um, if you have a place or two that has full lineups that you could do with tastings, uh, I hope people get to try more of this. As I said, the two products I've tasted, I really enjoyed. Um, I've gotten full bottles since, which I don't do for everything that I get to try, because both for space, but also for, (laughs) I don't like everything I try. Um, Yeah. but so in the meantime, though, just as we're closing up, uh, in addition to that 12-year you showed, what's next for Adam's Brewery and Distillery?
1: Well, the 12-year-old doesn't actually launch until the 9th of next month. So that is the next mm-hmm. new thing. Um, mm-hmm. We have a few other Distiller's Choice range spirits um, available. We've got um, some liquid that spent its whole life in a sherry cask and some, it's whole, another one that's spent its whole life in a port cask. Um, the only sherry cask one we actually had is actually sold out. But we do have some 100% port cask. It's, it's been in there. It was in there for seven years. Uh, highly port, really dark spirit. Uh, we have a few wine cask special specials. Even got, we've even got a Suffolk brandy. So Southwater's in the county of Suffolk. And I went to a winery over 10 years ago, well, 12 years ago now, I think, and chatted to them and got some wine off them. And I've actually got to choose which grapes were not individual actual grapes, but which grape varieties they used, um, which was exciting. Cause one of the Adnams wine buyer, we're wine importers as well, have been for a hundred years, over a hundred years, I think, um, was with me at the time. And he actually worked at this vineyard 40 years ago and planted some grape vines and they were still available to, and they were still producing grapes. So, um, yeah, so I had 5% of those put into the, into the wine, hi um my son um and yeah so that wine was made for us and i distilled it into one barrel of of brandy and it's there's you know it got to 10 years old before we bottled it so there's some of that available so yeah it's and then, and then, we're then doing we've got, experiments we've got with a few casks so of
2: eaten. english oak as well or a couple
1: we've got some actual english oak yeah very 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 <laughs> very expensive oak casks um made by another distillery friend of mine who um, i met on the gin distilling um he's another gin distiller who actually decided he wanted to have a he actually employed so wooden barrels have only only ever been used in england for beer many years ago Mm -hmm. and uh he's actually employed some old coopers who all they did was repair barrels but they used to make them Mm -hmm. um for some breweries that still use wood which is very few now and yeah, he said, don't do not do that. I want you to make barrels from English oak. So he's, uh, yeah, he's a passionate man. And yeah, so I bought a couple of barrels off him and filled with new spirit a couple of years ago now. So it's not quite even ready to taste, but we will taste that and we'll see what English oak does. It's Quercus robur. It's the same as um, French oak. So it may be the same. I'm told it's not, but I'll I'll tell you in a year. We'll come uh, back.
0: Absolutely. You are welcome back at any time. Uh, and I, there's many things that I still have to look forward to, to tasting and, and talking to people about, because I can be an unofficial brand ambassador over here.
2: Perfect. (laughs) We'll we'll arrange it through Fred.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Brad and John, thank you so much for coming on. Um, hang on with me for just a sec after we finish recording to close things out, but Th- yes thank you both for coming on for talking about Adnams um copperhouse even though it's less of a used name now but still part of the branding so copperhouse Adnams, sure. single Malt, yeah it's on the shirt um talking about the single malt the triple malt the rye malt the uh, spirit of broadside they also have an incredible selection of beers which i will be tasting when i get back to england hopefully not after too long and we'll have links in the show notes to all of their social media so you can follow them for when the new releases come out for November 9th when that 12-year-old launches and to see if there's any more of that port barrel left yeah. for you as well. And so yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, and also late. if
2: there's if there's anyone that, that is interested in a single cask or, or something special, um if we could put Fred's details up from Anthem imports. Because he's got a few, he's got a few samples absolutely. that I managed to get over to him from some of our interesting, some more, more interesting single casks that we've got, um, that potentially we could do specific bottlings for. Um, so, just thought I'd put that out there.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. We'll put Fred's info in there as well. I'm sure he won't mind, and if people are interested give them an email. All right, guys, I'm going to end recording. Thank you again for listening to an episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreoncom ring, That's whiskey with an e for as little as a dollar a month. Five dollars a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and twenty-five dollars a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots will remain in the Barrel Share Club. So grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at whiskey my wedding ring or at whiskey ring podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at whiskey ring. You can follow on Facebook at whiskey my wedding ring or join the Facebook group, the whiskey ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers! Thank you for the support and see you next time.